pray with me one more time as we enter into a time of hearing God's Word preached. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Father, these are words that we don't often pray, words that we don't often claim. But they are words that speak of Christ, our Savior, our Savior who has delivered us from the judgment of sin. That day that completed that work upon his resurrection. But, Father, it also speaks to a day that is yet to come, a day when our faith will be made sight, when we will see our Savior return. Father, let us long for that day. Let us expect that day. But in the meantime, Father, teach us to expect well, to long well as we live in this world. Father, I pray that you would do that for us this morning as we listen to your word preached from the book of Exodus, that we would relate to the suffering, to the trial of the people whom you called out of bondage, and that we would find ourselves in, in their position, waiting, but that we would wait well, that you would make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've had several books recommended this morning, <clears throat> and uh, I don't want to recommend a third, nor do I want you to think that because we have a baby shower scheduled this afternoon that I'm going to be talking about this other book. But I do want to speak about a 1984 book by Heidi Murkoff, a book all about pregnancy, the things surrounding pregnancy, the things to watch for, and the development of things as they happen within pregnancy. The book is titled, What to Expect When You're Expecting. It's now in its fifth edition, and it's full of practical information, practical insight about pregnancy, about the birthing process, packed into a short 684-page book. (laughs) Of course, if you're in the middle of pregnancy, then you can see the usefulness of such a book. Pregnancy is long, it's filled with discomfort, and it's nice to know where you're going in the process, isn't it? And what to expect. As one reviewer put it, what to expect when you're expecting is the Bible of American pregnancy. Well, if what to expect when you're expecting is the Bible of American pregnancy, then the Bible is the Bible of Christian pregnancy. Not pregnancy that ends with the delivery of a new child, certainly, but the pregnancy and expectation of God's promises. See, the Bible is a practical guide on what to expect when you're expecting the fulfillment of all that God has promised. What do I mean? Well, the gospel has promised rescue from the bondage of sin and death. It has promised that those who belong to Christ are sons and daughters of God. But then it has left us here in a state of longing and waiting in the discomfort at times in pregnancy of the expectation that our faith in God will be made sight. Those things that are declared true of us will be seen visibly when they're made reality. 
Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The wonderful promise of the canceling of the penalty of sin experienced now. Paul continues, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Again, the Bible tells us that we have not been left alone, but that we've been given the spirit, the promised counselor to help remind us of all that is true through God's revealed word as the down payment of that inheritance, building in a sense of longing for that which we expect the day that our faith is made sight. When we experience the glories of the presence of God before us, uh, when we know each other, when we know God as we know each other, when we're in the presence of God forevermore. What a day to long for that is. Paul continues, though, in Romans 8, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are now saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, I'm belaboring a point, aren't I? That we're waiting in tension, Christian. A hope in salvation, that you've been redeemed by the plan of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, having received the Spirit as the binder of the promises of God. But as Christians, there come new expectations a longing and a hope for the adoption that has been promised. But as we just read, is not fully witnessed yet in our lives. We longingly look forward to the long-expected second advent of Christ, the day when all of those promises will be made sight. The imminent return of Jesus, as the last words of the Bible put it, Surely I am coming soon, says Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. But for today, for this Sunday, in this moment, as you sit in your pew, we live in an already, but not yet, state, don't we? Secure in our salvation by faith, but still waiting for the completion of that faith. Living in the promises of salvation, but not having seen that reality in full. Not unlike pregnancy. For a 40-week anticipation of that baby. The waiting period when we know there's a baby there, but it has not yet been made sight. In one manner of speaking. And, And as we live in that expectation, it's helpful to be told what it should look like to live in expectation. To expect well. In short, what to expect when we're expecting. The Bible at various points gives us certain instructions and observations about what life in that intermediate state should look like. The tension of the already not yet. The what to expect when you're expecting. And today we come across that kind of text. 
It's not instructive, as in a clear, this is what you will experience, and this is what you will do about it. Rather, it's a narrative, a story. It's the story of the prophesied rescue of Israel, the tension of the promised deliverance from the clutches of slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt against the oppressive reality of the life that they currently find themselves in. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 5. That's where we'll be. We'll begin in verse 15. Exodus 5, beginning in verse 15. So far in Exodus, God has promised the rescue of his people, and he's called Moses to be his agent of that deliverance for the people of God. Uh, Moses has gotten the buy-in from the people of Israel as he's gone before their leadership, and now he's had an encounter with Pharaoh where he's demanded on behalf of the Lord, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. We witnessed that in the beginning of chapter 5. And now, from a human perspective, we see the result. The result was a little underwhelming, to be honest. Pharaoh says, I don't know this God, and I won't let your people go. And in response, Pharaoh furthermore decides to give the Israelites, the slaves in his administration, a greater work to do. They now have to continue making the same number of bricks that they were making before, presumably for some big building project. But now they have to gather all their own supplies to do that work. Surely that will distract them, thinks Pharaoh. Right there is is where we pick up in Exodus 5, verse 15, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Read with me silently as I read aloud. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. But you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Here the people of God are living in expectation of their deliverance. God has promised it. Their deliverer has been sent in Moses. And he has gone before Pharaoh to demand their release, and it's not yet happened. Now what? What are they supposed to think about these promises now? And worse yet, their life is harder as a result, not easier. What do they make of this supposed gospel of rescue in their own lives? Well, this passage mirrors our own experience in many ways. Uh, Certainly, we are not slaves in Egypt. 
But I'm sure you can see the comparisons. Here we are living in the expected deliverance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our rescuer has come, but I'm still here. I'm still longing for the fulfillment of all that the gospel has promised, namely eternal life and the enjoyment of God forever, free from sin, free from that bondage. And in some ways, this gospel has made my life harder as we live in expectation of that final and full deliverance. In light of this, how then are we to live, church? Well, I believe God wants us to consider from this passage how we are living in the already and not yet presence of the promises of God. Whether we're submitting to all that we've been called to through the gospel in this world, or if we are misplacing our expectations of God's deliverance. And our our central idea in this text is simply this. The promises of the gospel cause us to live in a different way from the world so that God will be glorified in our expectation. I'll repeat that. The promises of the gospel cause us to live in a different way from the world so that God will be glorified in our expectation. To see that, we will observe three proper expectations that we should have as Christians in the already but not yet world that we live in. Three things to expect when you're expecting. I'll list them for you now, then you'll have them ahead of time and you'll know where we're at in the sermon. The three things are that we should expect the gospel to deliver you on its terms. Expect to be a stranger in this world. And third, expect your expectation to be a proclamation. Let's start at the top. Expect the gospel to deliver you on its terms. Expect the gospel to deliver you on its terms. So the foreman approached Pharaoh and they want the workload reduced. If you remember from the story, the workload's been increased because Moses has done as God has commanded him. He's gone before Pharaoh and he's demanded the deliverance of the people of God. And that request got them into hot water, as you might imagine it would. And now they have had a heavier burden put on their backs, forced not only to make bricks at the same frantic pace, but to gather their own supplies to make them. And the foremen are understandably tired of all the brick making. And the fact that they now have to go and gather hay to make the bricks makes the demands of Pharaoh downright impossible. This is clearly a punitive measure, right? To get back at Israel for the suggestion of leaving. So the foremen come in to make their case before Pharaoh. They think that, they can, that he can be reasoned with in this moment. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, that they go before Pharaoh. I don't think that the request in and of itself is bad. After all, Pharaoh is probably being unreasonable here. Nonetheless, they're turned away. And they're told that the increased load remains. And there will be no escape right now. But the response of the foreman to that decree by Pharaoh is everything here. How will they respond to what they're told? Their response will show what they really believe about their rescue. Verse 19 is that response. Here God gives us a little insight into the heart of the foreman. 
the foreman of the people of Israel, saw that they were in trouble. Why? Because of what? What's caused their distress? When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. See, the foreman saw that they were in trouble, which is the understatement of all translations, by the way. This literally should read, the foreman saw that a great evil had been handed to them. That this was a wicked turn of events because of the bricks. Here in Exodus, the divine revelation of God condescending to rescue his people from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh Moses comes as the representative for Christ and he goes before Pharaoh speaking for God and demands their freedom so that they can be freed to serve God. That's why God wants them to be set free. That's the anthem that they've been given to repeat to themselves. The thing that they are to be expecting. And here's the heart of the foreman in response to that. They are troubled by bricks. Disheartened because of the toil of this world that has come as a result of Moses' plea. Believing that this increased workload has come to them as a curse given by Moses through God. God has cursed them. That's what they believe. And so they cannot trust God so long as this task of brick making and straw gathering exists. They cannot see past the problem at the end of their nose. In short, they've overrealized God's plan for their deliverance. They think that they should be free now, here in Egypt, at this moment. And the fact that their toil here has increased means that this supposed gospel of deliverance has turned out to be a curse and not something that they want. That if God really intended to bless us, He would never have allowed us to suffer with this extra workload. But just like Israel, we can overrealize our deliverance when we get too caught up in the bricks of life, thinking that the bricks are really the problem that I need rescued from. And that if God is really just and he really desires to bless me, he will do it here and now. Does that ever reflect your heart? Walk through this with me and see if this is ever you. I'll give you a few examples of what that looks like. See, sometimes we overrealize our deliverance when we expect to have a comfortable life here. We, we want the white picket fence. We want the beautiful family. We want, we want health. We want fulfillment. It's certainly not wrong to want those things any more than it was wrong for the foreman to go to Pharaoh and ask for Pharaoh to lighten their workload. But how do you respond when you don't receive them or when they're taken away? What do you do when it's gone? Because this life is a vapor, the Bible tells us, a mist that will slip through your fingers. And the more tightly you try to hold on to it, the more pain you will experience when it's gone. And when you expect the gospel to bring you those things because God has promised them, it's easy to assume that God is evil and he's out to get me when it doesn't happen. Wondering with the foreman of Egypt why evil has come upon us when we don't get it. Can your gospel operate in the face of sickness and destitution in this world? Can you have joy in this life when you lose that which is valuable to you? Sometimes we overrealize our 
deliverance when we expect the right political climate. Does this ever your heart? After all, we might ask, or we might think, we want good things, don't we? We want the things of God, right? We want abortion eliminated. We want a proper view of equity, perhaps. Fill in the blank of your particular hobby horse issue. Why doesn't God do it? We expect justice here, don't we? When we say, why is there so much suffering in this world? Surely a good God could not allow that. Why do children get bone cancer? Why are there tyrants who take life indiscriminately? All those questions seek justice, don't they? Uh, Social justice is a big issue. Why is there racism, Lord? Mistreatment of whole people groups. Don't get me wrong, it's, it's not wrong to go before Pharaoh and suggest that these things are unreasonable. To go in and desire for good to happen in this world. That does honor God if we hold that properly. But that is not to be representative of our hope. That's what this section of Exodus is getting at. As if we are to make heaven on earth right here in this moment. And when we build our life on fixing those things, first and primarily, we threaten to lose the true gospel for a cheap imitation here in this world. We throw out the feasting to God as the people of God are called to for a small reduction of bricks today. Just south of here in Newburyport, Massachusetts, is the meeting house of the First Presbyterian Society. It was erected in 1756. It's noteworthy for a number of reasons. First, because the great preacher George Whitfield helped plant that church. If you don't know, George Whitfield was a, a rock star of a preacher in the First Great Awakening, in a good way. He, he attracted crowds into the tens of thousands, saw thousands saved in response to his preaching. The man was legendary. Uh, Some people reflected that they could hear his voice from up to 10 miles away. He had such a great preaching voice. In an era when it's speculated that one-third of the population of the United States was saved under good gospel preaching, Whitfield is considered one of the best. The meeting house was, was the meeting house of the First Presbyterian Society was the church that this man, George Whitfield, planted. And the second reason that it's noteworthy is that George Whitfield himself is buried under the pulpit there in a vault that you can visit to this day. But in a great irony, in the meeting house, the pulpit under which Whitfield, the great preacher, is buried, hasn't had a gospel preacher in it for decades. Instead, the church has turned its attention to social conservation projects, like their current one, which is an effort to save seagulls endangered by pollution. That's the drive of the church. Well, how did that happen? How did they turn from the gospel to something so dramatically ungospel? Well, it wasn't overnight, I can assure you. It happened when the gospel transitioned from being a future hope, a feasting with God in the gospel, to a present expectation, to a reduction in bricks. When the gospel turned into a gospel of the here and now, slowly at first, I'm sure, but growing more and more into a fixation on the present crises of the planet and how we can be delivered from the brick making of this world today and a failure to trust in the rescuer to deliver us 
in God's time. Those are all ways that our life puts the gospel on our terms out there in the world. But what about in our own hearts? Do you see that in your own heart? What about relational justice? Sometimes we tend to argue so that we can have our own needs met. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Arguing with your spouse so that you can feel right, even though you know that you're wrong or you've forgotten what the argument's even about. Withholding forgiveness to feel a little bit better about yourself. Holding quiet criticisms to feel superior. Those are small relational justices. And they're small gospel hopes. The hope of some kind of satisfaction here and now. Not any different from what the meeting house of the First Presbyterian Church does. It's the gospel on our own terms. And all of this is a demand for our best life now. I want it now. By the way, that's the title of a best-selling Christian book, Your Best Life Now. In it, the author writes, don't just accept whatever comes your way in life. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. You know, I believe that's the same advice that the foreman followed in this text. They didn't just accept their new task. They thought they were born to win, born for greatness, born to be champions in life. And they ended up crushed by the oppression of Pharaoh because that wasn't the promise of God. They were not to bring the freedom from oppression. That was not their role. They were to trust in the man that God appointed for their salvation. They were to trust in his promises while they continued to faithfully believe that God would do it while they were in Egypt. And when we misplace this life as the place of our best life, we will always believe that something has gone wrong because God hasn't promised our best life now in terms of winning and have everything we want in this world. You need to expect the gospel to rescue you on its terms. And the gospel, as it's revealed in Scripture, is that you were created to know and enjoy God forever. That's what you were created for. But that sin corrupted our relationship with a holy God. And as long as sin was present, man could not come back to the thing he was created for. He could not feast with God. Not stuff here, no social justice issue, no relational justice in our heart, but back to the enjoyment of God as his child. So God sought to deliver his people from the bondage of sin by sending Jesus, the God-man, to live a perfect life, fully obedient to God. The only person who has ever successfully done that. And he did it because he's God. And he sent him not just to live perfectly, but to die perfectly. To die as a substitute for all of those who would trust in him. And so all who trust in Jesus are set free from the bondage of sin to enjoy God forever. Not for this world, though God can be known and enjoyed here, but to live past death, to be in the presence of God forever as you were intended to do. That's what your heart has been longing for. So even as you long for those other false gospels that I just mentioned, a comfortable life, political justice, social justice, relational justice, fill in the blank, those are attempts that we all make to fill the void of what we were created for, true relation to God. 
the object of the gospel through Jesus. Trust in the man that God has sent for the promises for which the gospel has been given. Expect the gospel to rescue you on its terms. But second, expect to be a stranger in the world. Expect to be a stranger in the world. The foremen of Israel are not satisfied with Pharaoh's response. They're tired of the extra labor that's being thrown their way. But we've covered that. So they walk out of their meeting in a huff. You can picture it. But what comes into view is, is not a rest in God's coming deliverance. That's not where they go. But pitting God's morality against Pharaoh's. And the people seeking to make themselves at home in Egypt. What do I mean by that? I'll explain. Egypt believes that idleness is the great sin of Israel. Did you catch that in the text? That's what Pharaoh says. It's because you're idle that you want and go feast to the Lord. So they need to devote themselves, thinks Pharaoh, to more fully be devoted to their work. That their sin of idleness has led them away from that work. In other words, Egypt says Israel's morality or God's more like it, to leave their work and feast with the Lord is evil. And the answer is to be forced back to morality by being forced out of that idleness, which is their sin according to the world, and back into labor. But God says that they are to worship him on his terms. That's the morality that he gives them. And their slavery is in opposition to God's, to come out and worship him in the wilderness. That's what he has for them. That's what's primary here, and it's worth standing out in the culture to accomplish that work. So even if they're made to look silly before Pharaoh, that's worth it. It's easy to see the parallels between that and our lives, isn't it? The world has a morality, and God has a morality, and he has a people, that he, uh, and a people are expecting the rescue of God. As those people were caught in the middle of this moral struggle, who will we follow? Which direction will we go when the world says that we should support new and redefined marriage and that that's loving and even hinting at the opposition to it, let alone standing in the way of it, is immorality. When the world says that abortion is a woman's right and and that it's oppressive to give that freedom because it's a basic human right, those who oppose it will be seen as immoral. And when transgenderism is seen as virtuous and a virtuous path to self-actualization, those who oppose it will be seen as violent and immoral. We can easily see that there's two moralities working here, can't we? Playing against each other. And they're so opposed in our day that they, they clash at a fever pitch in our culture. That's where we find ourselves as strangers in this land today. As Carl Truman puts it, the era where Christians could disagree with the broader convictions of the secular world and yet still find themselves respected as decent members of society is coming to an end, if indeed it hasn't ended already. Our rescue, as the foreman note, made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and has put a sword in their hand to kill us. How should we respond to that? How do we not fatigue to the truth when we're made to stink to the world by it? 
Scripture calls us to expect to be strangers in this world. To expect that. That means two things. That means that God's morality will at times oppose the world. That God's morality will at times oppose the world. Look, if the gospel is as radical as Scripture indicates, that men are wicked and opposed to God in their hearts by sin, that's you and I, that it should be no surprise to us that in the flesh, what we see as moral will oppose what God sees as moral. But we can be blind to that truth, can't we? We can be blind to God's morality and believe that ours is better. But God is calling us to be suspicious when your morality does not oppose the world. And we are not to defend it, but we're to sit in that and to dwell in what God has said is right. Being obedient to God and what he says is moral ended up costing Israel more work, though. Scripture tell us, tells us don't be surprised by the fiery trials you find yourselves in. Being a stranger in the world means that God's morality will at times oppose the world. But second, it means being a stranger in this world should lead us to a radical submission. Being a stranger in this world should lead you to a radical submission. See, so often our conscience is calibrated by the world. The foremen here in this story have their conscience calibrated by the world. Even bringing the name of God into the equation, did you catch it? To dictate what's right and wrong. As they leave Pharaoh, notice that they pronounce a curse on Moses and Aaron for the mess that they're in. And they do it in the name of the Lord. We see it in verse 21. The Lord look on you and judge you. But they do so falsely, appropriating the name of God into the standard that they've created, into their own conscience, into their own morality, bringing God onto their side, saying that their morality also happens to be God's morality. But we should be careful what we call the Lord's word on any subject. That's the essence of taking the Lord's name in vain. We do not have the authority to be the standard of God's word. You cannot determine God's word on your own. Rather, we are to be calibrated. We're to be adjusted. We're to be shaped by God's word. We don't call our personal convictions God's word. See, the, the key to expecting to be a stranger in the world is to find your approval in God and not in the world. That's what this is calling us back to. To value him and what he says over what we think and what others around us might think. We tend to apply the call to be a stranger to the large-scale things, don't we? The stuff out there. But the reality is that this is a heart condition that we're called to live in. We're called to submit to God as strangers in our own flesh first. Then being a stranger in the world after that. Ultimately, the way that you expect Christ in your life, ultimately the way that you expect to be a stranger, expect the gospel to rescue you, matters. The way that Israel expects has implications for their life, both in their personal journey, their personal joy, and as a testimony to the world. So when you expect the gospel to rescue on its terms, and you expect to be a stranger, 
you lead right into our third point, which is to expect your expectation to be a proclamation. Expect your expectation to be a, a proclamation. In the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, there's a little girl, Goldilocks, who stumbles across a cabin in the woods. There she finds food on the table. And as she tries the soup, she finds that one bowl is too hot to eat. Trying the next, she finds that that bowl is too cold. And finally, she tries the third and finds that it's just right. Well, as we think about our involvement in the world and how we should expect it, it's tempting to look for the just right portion to think I could find the right level of involvement in the world. One that's not too hot and not too kind and find the right middle ground. So as you're listening to this sermon, you might be thinking, I need to get after those people who need to be a little more hot or maybe a little more cold so that they can be just like you are. Or maybe you're apprehensive, afraid of what you might be called to because it will feel too hot or too cold. But the answer is not necessarily to find the just right setting. You don't need five simple rules for living in the world. The answer is that the Lord would be the Lord in your life. It's that simple. That you would see him as Lord, the covenant God who is the rescuer. That's where the Lord takes Moses when Israel flounders here. When they say, why is this happening? Why don't I see the expectation that I'm waiting for? God speaks to Moses, beginning in chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment." Three times in this passage, God reaffirms his intended rescue for his people, Israel. Three times so that they will trust him as the Lord, living in expectation of that rescue. Because ultimately, your expectation and the way that you expect will be a proclamation about what you believe. I think that happens in a few ways. First, it proclaims what you are believing to you. See, God's point here is that Israel see him as Lord. That name, the Lord, is the name of the God in covenant, the God who makes and fulfills his promises, the one who intimately knows his people. And he uses that name three times as he pronounces the way that he will rescue them. God has revealed his plan several times now. He's done that a number of times. But what's revealed here is that even in their disobedience, God is loving and compassionate patiently bearing with his people as they wander away and they become disenfranchised by the world around them, getting caught up in the bricks. As the song goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. God patiently calls him back to them as the Lord. 
The reality is that there has never been a day when I was focused on the Lord as truly as he is the Lord. As truly as he is fulfilling promises in my life. There's never been a day when I have reflected on him as loving as he truly is. And as caring as he is to keep me. But he patiently reminds me. He keeps patiently pulling me along. That's why I need to rehearse the gospel every day. As God does to Moses here in this passage. Reminding him of the rescue. So I need to wake up tomorrow morning and believe the gospel again. That I'm a sinner who has been redeemed by God through the blood of Christ. And am now dearly loved by God. I have to wake up and believe that again. To drill myself as to how the gospel speaks into this situation or that. When I'm under a heavy workload or my children are challenging to consider how the gospel speaks into that. That I'm ultimately not identified as a parent, but as a child of God, loved by God through Jesus. That's what I need to continue to believe. Find yourself in God's word, church. Read it, not for righteousness sake, not because you earn righteousness by reading God's word, but as if you're dependent on it, as if you're digging for treasure in it, looking desperately for a promise that you can apply to your wounded soul, just as Moses is in this passage. Read the word and press it into your heart. If you do a a daily reading plan, are you searching for the promises of God in that? This past Friday, if you were reading the same page summer, if you're doing that reading plan we have on the back table, you read 2 Corinthians 9. And God is able to make all grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The promise is that God is working in me because of the gospel to promote every good work in me in his sufficiency is doing that. See, we mine God's word for those promises, for that treasure. We're desperate for them. Are you treasuring those promises, church, in your quiet time? Because I don't wake up in the gospel and seeing God as the Lord of my deliverance. I need to be a part of the church, right? Because my soul needs community among the people of God so that I don't wander back to the bricks of life and think that this is it. How much do you need the preached word? Did you come in hungry for it today? To be sustained in the gospel. Even in in despair and in the sadness and oppression of this world, the reality is, is that those bricks were not a light load, were they? The bricks that the Egyptians forced them to make were not a light load. That's a crushing prospect that the foremen are under. And I don't pretend to know why God gives us or continues to allow us in that to make bricks sometimes. Why he doesn't relieve the burden right away. Why some are given sickness and persecution Why some sin just doesn't seem to go away in our life. Why depression lingers in our hearts. I don't know, at least not in your specific situation. 
But the gospel frees you to suffer under it well with a great hope and a joy in the pain in expectation of a future glory that's beyond all comparison. Verse 9 of chapter 6, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Israel did not expect this way. Do you? How is your expectation today? Groaning for the promises to come true, as in Romans 8. Praying eagerly for the return of Christ, as the last words of Revelation indicate. Or are you passive, despairing to the world and the condition of your heart? Crushed today by the heavy weight of bricks and unable to gather the straw to make them. Where do you find yourself? If that's you, don't be ashamed. We'll find ourselves there in that kind of despair. But view that as a grace that when you stumble to see how needy you are of God's deliverance, how needy you are of the gospel in your life. The way in which you expect is a proclamation to your own soul of what you're believing. And trust that the way that you're expecting also proclaims what you're believing to the world. See, the church is not full of hypocrites, so long as we're a people who see our sin and constantly turn back to our deliverer. A sinless church is, is not a church that needs deliverance. Do you know that? Uh, but a church of self-aware sinners does need the gospel. That's the kind of church that you're sitting in this morning. A church that needs the gospel. A church full of sinners and with a sinner in the pulpit. One who's struggling with parenting right now. One who's prone to discouragement, critical yet afraid of criticism, but needing the gospel in all of that. That's who I am. That's my proclamation to you. Not that I'm strong enough to make the bricks, that I can gather all the hay that I need, but that I know one who has appointed me for a future rescue from the pain of sin and the conflict in my own heart and who has paid my penalty today. Breaking the power of sin over me. Do you believe that? That's your proclamation to the world. Not that you're good or that I'm good, but that the gospel is great because it redeems broken people like me. The way that you remain faithful to your gospel hope throughout life, it comes with ups and downs. Not looking to have bricks taken away or to have your comfort here is the ultimate end of your testimony. That kind of perspective has lasting hope when you hope for something eternal. The American missionary Adniram Judson is a personal hero. He arrived in Burma in 1812 and died there 38 years later in 1850. During that time, he suffered greatly for the cause of the gospel. He was imprisoned. He was tortured. He was kept in shackles. He, he did not suffer though, is the strong, stoic type, like the pillar of great strength that sometimes we think of these great men of God as. Now, after the death of his wife, Anne, for several months he was so depressed that he sat beside her tomb. Three years later, he wrote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. But Adniram's faith in the gospel and in the, the future hope and the expectancy sustained him. 
And through his expectancy of the gospel, he remained faithful to the task which he believed God had called him to. He worked feverishly on his translation of the Bible. The New Testament had been printed, and now he finished the Old Testament in 1834. Now, we don't know for sure, but there were somewhere between 12 and 25 professing Christians in Burma when Judson died. 38 years after he arrived. 12 and 25. And there were no churches to speak of. But at the 150th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Burmese language, Paul Borthwick was addressing a group that was celebrating Judson's work. Just before he got up to speak, he noticed the small print on on the first page, uh, the words translated by Reverend A. Judson. So Borthwick turned to his interpreter, a Burmese man named Matthew, and asked him, Matthew, what do you know of this man? And Matthew began to weep. As he said, we know him. We know him, how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us. Out of love for us, he died a pauper, but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us. And every single one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, the Reverend Adniram Judson. What do you expect in your expectation? Do you put your hope in this world? Or are you like Judson? Do you trust the Lord in the gospel and in the proclamation of his goodness? Father, thank you for your great gospel. Thank you for the expectation with which we can live as a people longing, longing for our future rescue, our future deliverance. Father, let us... Expect well what you have given us to expect for. Let us expect within the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.